One of my uh, favorite stories is found in a book written in 1987 entitled Odyssey. It's written by John Scully. And Scully tears of, tells of his career decision to move from being president of Pepsi-Cola uh, to being the CEO of Apple Computer. And he writes that this was the toughest decision he had ever made. Pepsi was well-established and prestigious, and Scully was one person away from the top of the entire organization. On the other hand, Apple was struggling to survive, and it had an iffy future in a volatile, high-tech market. Scully had years of experience marketing beverages. He had zero experience of reviving lagging computer sales. But one man kept pushing him. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, had flown several times from California, Silicon Valley to New York City to persuade Scully to join him. And Scully writes about one of these meetings. He says they met for lunch and then they continued the conversation out, outdoors on a balcony overlooking the city. And the topic was uh, the merits of Apple's offer. And Jobs became increasingly persistent. And he kept asking, kept asking, are you going to come to Apple? Are you going to come to Apple? And Scully said, Steve, I love what you're doing at Apple. I'm excited about it. It's captivating. But it just doesn't make any sense. So Scully tried to discourage uh, Jobs by talking to him about Apple's inability to pay him what he'd need to make to make that kind of move. And so Jobs just asked him, what would it take? And Scully uh, threw out some huge numbers on the table. Remember, this is in the 80s, so sounds not quite as big now. But he said, a million in salary a million signing bonus, and a million in severance if it doesn't work out. And Jobs agreed. So the ball was back in Scully's court. And then Jobs asked a question that changed everything for John Scully. It was the kind of question a genuine leader can't brush off and walk away from. He asked the president of Pepsi this question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? And Scully said, that question knocked the wind out of me, and he made the switch to Apple. During the Sundays when I've been preaching for the past few months, I've tried to put the spotlight on a few men and women in the Old Testament with two primary goals. The first is for us to take a little bit of the mystery out of God, uh, particularly in the way that he treats us. We don't have to guess at how God is going to treat us when we get into certain situations because when we see someone in the Bible in our same situation and we see how God treats them, we can know that God will treat us the same way. The second goal is to see that the Old Testament is not out of touch, but rather is extremely relevant for our day. And today we're going to spotlight a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was kind of the John Scully of his day. He left a cushy, a cushy situation that made uh, no sense to leave because he had a chance to change a nation. Nehemiah was a genuine leader. He influenced people, maybe to the point of getting people to do something they didn't think possible or even didn't, didn't want to do. And I, I know that I'm in a room full of leaders this morning. Some of you may lead large numbers of people, while some may lead only a few. Some of you manage tasks with great financial impact, not just for yourself, but for a lot of other people. All of you parents are tasked with the spiritual and social development of your children and that is monumentally significant. Someone in here may be leading a group of third graders for eight hours a day, and a few of you coach these same kids on the soccer field at night. The potential to influence people that exist in this room is phenomenal. And that's really what leadership is, isn't it? Influencing people. 
Just imagine if our collective focus primarily becomes influencing people around us for kingdom purposes. Someone said to Teddy Roosevelt one time, said, Mr. Roosevelt, you are a great leader. He said, no, Teddy Roosevelt is simply a plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. And that's a good description of great leaders, ordinary, but motivated. I watched a, uh, an interview with Winsome Sears last night, and she is the first African-American woman to be elected to the Virginia Senate. And she was being interviewed, and she brought up the topic of leadership. And she said, you know if you're a leader by seeing who follows you. If you think you're a leader and you turn around but no one is following, you're just taking a walk. That, that's a pretty insightful comment. We need to have a, a brief Jewish uh, history lesson to help set the stage this morning. I'm not really big on history, and so hang with me. You know, I think this will help you. Uh, you may not be really interested in history either all that much, or poetry. So we've kind of slammed history and poetry this morning. See who else we can offend before you leave the room. <laughs> um, Jewish history begins with Abraham around 2000 BC. And over time, Israel developed an, uh, an inferiority complex as a nation. They were just so different from everyone else. To soothe their desire to fit in, they decided having a king would do the trick. About a 1,000 years later, when Saul and David and Solomon uh, became kings, Israel becomes known, especially under David's rule. Israel became a military power. And then he turned the throne over to his son, Solomon. Here's what Solomon did. This is in 1 Kings 11, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, have you not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So when Solomon dies, Israel divides. You have 10 tribes that went north to Samaria, and they are referred to as Israel. Two tribes went south to Judah, or to Jerusalem, and refer to them as, as Judah. And those two groups didn't care much for each other. During their civil war, they lost the global respect and the uh, influence that God had established. And then things got worse. The Assyrians invaded Israel, the northern tribes, in 722 B.C. and destroyed that whole northern kingdom. Uh, a few survivors fled to the south to escape, and, and Judah remained a Jewish nation uh, after that national division for about 300 more years, until 586, when King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon invaded and took Judah captive. There are two tragedies that are particularly noteworthy, which occurred during this time. The Babylonians set fire to the temple, and they broke down the wall, which protected it. In 2 Chronicles 36.20, this is kind of what we read from a historical perspective, Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, those that were left of Israel, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So we see that the house of God is destroyed, uh, the treasures of the temple are taken, the wall is in ruin, ruins, and the Jews left standing were chained together and herded 800 miles back to Babylon to live as slaves in a foreign land. Here is something else that's very important to notice. God didn't forget about them. 
What happens next is pretty cool. Again, in, in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20, Israel becomes slaves in Babylon. And then we have this phrase that's kind of curious. Until the king of Persia came to power. Persia was ruled by King Cyrus. King Darius in a neighboring country was the ruler of the Medes, and they were allies. So the Medes and the Persians joined forces, invaded Babylon, and forced a surrender. And here's what happens next. And again, in 2 Chronicles 36, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart. He moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. Take a little time out here for one moment. Was Cyrus a believer in the God of Israel? Was he a follower of God? And you need to shake your head this way. He was not. But he was concerned about the Jews. And here's, here's a spiritual principle that we run across in our Bibles from time to time that's real helpful to catch a hold of. God does not limit himself to work only through believers. He does what he wants done through whomever and whenever he chooses. He works in the heart of kings and rulers to do his plan. God's ultimate plan was to get the Jews back in their land, and he used Cyrus to do that. This is what Cyrus the king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's exactly what happens. The Jews went back to Jerusalem under the leadership of three men. Company A left first with Zerubbabel. Uh, Company B left about 80 years later with Ezra. And by now Cyrus has died and Persia is ruled by another guy named Artaxerxes. And 13 years later, Company C comes back to Jerusalem with Nehemiah. And if you want to read about this in more detail, there's two books in our Bible that uh, tell the story of these rebuilding days. Ezra is the story of the temple being rebuilt. And Nehemiah is the story of the wall being rebuilt. So that wasn't too painful, was it? You still with me? So let's look at the beginning of Nehemiah. Uh, if you want to turn to Nehemiah, you'll find it a little bit before Psalms and a little bit after some of those books, the Pentateuch, the like Genesis, Exodus is kind of tucked away in there right after Ezra. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. He, he's the food and drink taster to make sure nobody poisons the king. But he's really much more than that. He was with the king often. Uh, they had a friendship, it seemed like. He seemed to have a little influence with the king. Uh, in verse 1 of Nehemiah, <clears throat> this is what we find out is kind of the setting. <coughs> in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, which we read about, that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those that survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. <clears throat> the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And check out Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's response in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The reality of Israel's condition before God broke Nehemiah's heart. And I, I, can't, I can't get past that without asking this question for myself and for you. I mean, what news would you need to receive to have that same kind of response? Does the reality of 
yours or someone else's condition before God, you know, break your heart. Do you ever wonder what makes God cry? The reality of Israel's condition before God and before the rest of the world, it, it wrenched Nehemiah's soul. The wall is down, the people are vulnerable, the Jews are being criticized, they're experiencing great trouble and disgrace, they're being slandered, and his boss, Artaxerxes, was not a believer in Israel's God. So God has some work to do on Artaxerxes before Nehemiah could get anywhere with this burden. And maybe, maybe that's familiar to you. Maybe you've had a person between you and your dream, and that person has a different worldview than you do. What dilemma do you face for which God could only bring success? It's, it's a good idea to have something like that going on in our life from time to time. When Nehemiah listened to this news about his heritage, what's the first thing he did? He wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Praying for the opportunity to speak out, uh, to recognize the moment when, when something opens up that God authored. Let's take a look at Nehemiah's prayer uh, in verse 5 in chapter 1. Here's what he said. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. This is, this is the prayer that he prayed right after he learned about the news of, of the temple and the wall. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. It's an important word to hang on to. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, which is Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah faces a dilemma here to which only God can bring success. He's praying for God to infiltrate the heart of Artaxerxes the king, his boss, to soften him up and and to get him on his side. One of the hardest things for a leader to deal with is being led. But every one of us has a superior, and we will have for most of our our lives at at all times. So a question at some point is, how do we handle confrontation with that person? You know, have you ever had a conflict with a boss who doesn't seem to care about morals or ethics? Or maybe you feel like your input and ideas never get attention. Here's a proverb you might want to take a note of. Put it on your bathroom mirror or in your refrigerator. It's in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. God has in his hands the king's heart, and he can bend it in any direction he wants. And we saw that from Cyrus in 2 Corinthians 36. And I'm sure what is true of the king is true of your boss or any person leading you. So here's what happens to Nehemiah. He worked under the king of Persia, Persia, Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes was not known to be a man who changed his mind. Uh, Nehemiah was his cupbearer. He had a job to do. 
But his heart all this time now, as he's learned about what's going on in Jerusalem, it's being pulled there, pulled to Jerusalem, pulled to do something for his nation. God had to work through the heart of this king if Nehemiah was to have any success. So Nehemiah prays a simple prayer. Make your servants successful. Grant me favor in Artaxerxes' presence. And do it when? Today. Give your servant success today. And what happened next? Nothing. Nothing happens after Nehemiah prays this prayer for something to happen today. The next day, he goes right back to work doing his cup-bearing responsibilities. Now, I know, I know so many of us can relate to this because I know that we have all prayed and nothing happens. Nothing. And the waiting can be so disillusioning. You pray and you lay it out and you leave it at the throne and you walk away trusting but nothing happens. For days, nothing happens. In Nehemiah's case, from the month of Kislev to Nisan, nothing happens. That's from about November to April, from four to six months. Nothing happens. Nehemiah prayed, give your servant success when? Today. Nothing happens. God, he wonders, are you awake? Do you care? And then more months pass. That's, that's what happens to Nehemiah. So, so he waits. Nothing visibly, nothing visibly changes for, for months. Nothing is different. Let's keep reading. We're in the second chapter now, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So we're about four to six months out from being the prayer of make your servant successful today. Four or so months later, something, it seems like, is about to happen. He said, I had not been sad in his presence before. I mean, do, do you think Nehemiah ever wonders much about where God was in those days when nothing happens, no progress, no open door, no opportunity to say something to influence his situation? So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah is honest. He said, when the king asked me that question, I got scared. And I said to the king, verse 3, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And Nehemiah immediately shoots up another prayer and he realizes this may just be the opportunity I prayed for back four, five, six months ago. Now, I think this is a cool moment because you've, you've been there. When have you been right in the middle of what you know is a prayer being answered? S- someone asks you the question that you've been wanting to talk to them about. You didn't even have to bring it up, and here it is. Or maybe you're giving great advice to somebody you've never thought of before. You're thinking, this is so good, I'm going to take notes on myself. This is good stuff coming out of my mouth. Where did that come from? Or maybe a door's been open for you or looks to be opening for something you've been waiting for just the right time to happen and it's right in front of you and for a moment you're stunned with the reality of it all you realize God may be answering this prayer right now 
I mean, I may be in the middle of it. Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah, what do you want? I mean, that's an incredible question for him to ask, unprompted. So I answer the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, there's, there's the big picture. He, he lays it out. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? I mean, he's already, he's already there. He's already buying in. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. You get the idea here that the king doesn't want Nehemiah to stay away so long, for very long. Despite Nehemiah's broken heart for his people, his attitude for work is positive. The king likes having him near. He hasn't been grumpy or negative or pouting for four to six months. He's been doing his job with joy, and the king loves having him in there. In there. Sometimes when your heart is somewhere else, it's hard to stay on task, isn't it? And that's not the way Nehemiah handles his time of waiting on the Lord. Nehemiah gives Artaxerxes a definite time frame for his trip. You guys are not going to be surprised where I go with this next because you know me pretty well. What do you think about people who hear God's call but don't have any plans and they might conveniently call it living by faith? I mean, who, who's going to criticize that? I have a line that I, I really like um, that I guess I would like to criticize that. <laughs> the presence of faith does not mean the absence of organization. God honors a plan, and the best plans begin with prayer. Has Nehemiah been through, thought through what he will say when God opens the door to him? He, he absolutely has. He has a plan. He has a plan. He's been rehearsing it. He's been doing more than just waiting. He's been planning, which shows a ton of faith. He expects it to happen. It didn't happen today. It didn't happen today again. It didn't happen today for four to six months. But it, he, he believes it's going to happen. He believes in God enough in God that he made plans for the day that his prayer would be answered. Going by faith, living by faith does not mean haphazard spontaneity. And faith involves counting the cost financially, emotionally, spiritually. Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Trust in God, but send out an application or two or maybe a hundred. Don't just sit around. Give God the opportunity to work through you and your faith in him. Verse 7, I also said to him, so he laid out the big pictures. Now he's going to get a little more detailed because he has a plan. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber because I need to, to rebuild the gates and I need to build a place for myself and the wall. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So Nehemiah is asking for timber. He's asking to build himself a house. He's asking for letters to cross uh, other king's territories. Why did all this happen the way Nehemiah could only have dreamed? Verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. For four months, Nehemiah waits, he prays, he does his job, he hopes, and he makes plans for the day God cracks open the door and softens the king's heart. And how cool is it that Nehemiah doesn't even have to bring up the subject? Again, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Um, 
like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he pleases, wherever he wishes. So Artaxerxes asked, Nehemiah, is something wrong? What do you want? You know, only God could pull that off. So let's kind of get to the application here. Do you, do you have anything going on right now that only God could pull off? That's one of the main messages in the book of Nehemiah uh, for leaders of groups, for us individually. I mean, life was cozy for Nehemiah in the citadel of Susa. He had a stable job. He had good friends. He had steady income, plenty to eat, a little bit of power. But he, had, but he left the palace to go help God build a wall and help a nation regain an identity. And that's, that's God-sized stuff. And we need dreams like that in our lives. I want you to think back to about uh, 2014. That's when we initially talked about building a few walls around here. And we have several in, of you in here today who weren't here back then, and it's a good story for you to hear a little bit about. I have no doubt that the gracious hand of the Lord was upon us as we decided to build these three floors uh, behind me. And let's just think back. I mean, do you remember what that used to be back there, right? It was beautiful. It's like a mansion. It, was, it would rival what you're going to have in heaven when you get there. And just the opposite of that. It was a maze of hallways. It was floors at different levels. There was one room that Barrett wouldn't even be able to stand up straight in. I mean, he like, had to do this in there. The ceiling was about 5'10". Um, the windows that wouldn't open, the windows that wouldn't close. A few moldy spots. And my favorite, a room called the carpeted area. Remember the carpeted area? <laughs> in this entire building, there was only one area that wasn't carpeted, but we had a carpeted area, and everybody seemed to know what it was. And there was one, that other area was, had hard floor, and we called it, creatively, the tiled room. I mean, there's some classy naming of spaces that went on around here. Um, so... We needed to remodel that space. It was fallen in. It was disastrous. It was, it was unusable. And so we had about a half a million dollars worth of remodeling, remodeling fees to look at it, um, to doing that. And you remember the options. We were going to say, we're going to spend $500,000 to fix what we have or spend about $3 million to build something new, which was a lot of money. When we consulted professional fundraisers, they estimated that we would be able to raise somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.2 million based on our annual contributions. And we decided not to use a fundraiser for that project. Uh, I guess they didn't dream big enough for us. Instead, with transparency and honesty, that was very attractive, I believe, we laid out our options, and as a church family, we decided we want to do based on how much we were willing to give. And you know what happened? It's pretty incredible. Nobody twisted anyone's arm to give. No one made anyone else feel guilty about how much to give. We didn't knock on anyone's door and ask him to give. We simply asked, what are you willing to give? And as a family, we gave over $3 million. So in August of 2017, we began using this new facility, and we had zero debt to pay off. Uh, Jeremy was talking in the office not too long ago about how there were more middle and high school students on a Wednesday night than he has ever seen here before. We wouldn't have had room for that in our old building. Back in August, we had over 200 people uh, eat together in this new space. That would never have been able to happen in our old building. Even our chili supper, that was smaller than that with trunk or treat. We couldn't have pulled that off. 
our children's ministry has such a beautiful space and plenty of room and well-organized, and, and, it's, and it's so welcoming. We didn't have <laughs> anything close to that in the old building. They needed to wear a mask there just to be protected from black mold, I think. <laughs> we should have strongly encouraged that a long time ago. <laughs> I have no doubt that the gracious hand of our Lord was on us through that project, not just because of the money given or the usefulness of the space. I have no doubt that the gracious hand of our Lord was on us because of the unity we experienced through the project. It's amazing, it's amazing to keep a church family together in a project of that magnitude, and only the Lord could pull it off. So what are you dreaming about and planning for that's extremely bigger than you or your abilities? You know, maybe it's, it's starting your own business. Maybe it's getting married or starting a family. Maybe it's a move. Maybe it's a stay. Our lives need seasons where we are pursuing a partnership with God to pull off a dream which can only happen if he co-signs the dream with us. Without those seasons of dreaming and sacrifice, we'll grow old and comfortable in the mediocrity of life in the, in the citadel. Maybe you're someone who used to dream. You've had dreams of a great marriage, of a booming business. You've had dreams of being on the dean's list or reconciling a broken relationship. You've had dreams of a, of a promotion. And you've had some of the boldest and grandest plans ever developed. But someone stomped in your path and told you to go back. Or a situation arose which seemed insurmountable, so you turned back and now you don't dream much anymore. God has a message for you in Nehemiah. Remember Cyrus? Remember Artaxerxes? God worked through those two men who weren't believers. We need to grasp the truth this morning that God is much bigger than we often give him credit. He changes people's thinking. He uses people for his purposes without them even knowing it. He moves people. He gets people transferred. If you're on board with God, you have no good reason to think in terms of stone walls, barriers, or constraints. God will displace any situation or person who gets in the way if you two are on mission together. In fact, it may be a fairly accurate indicator of whether or not you're on target. Do you continually face immovable barriers, or do those immovable immovable barriers tend to keep moving? If someone is in your way, ask God to either move them or get them on your side, at least for a season. And remember the proverb, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. They're like the rivers of water. He He uh, turns it wherever he wishes. We need to dream big. Big enough to get God's attention, persistently enough to get God's help, and faithfully enough to expect his partnership. Do you want to spend the rest of your life in the citadel? Cozy, comfortable, stable, secure? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Let's stand together and sing.